Are you looking for a podcast full of detailed magic strategy where we break down decks card by card, go over the ins and outs of various matchups, and just really give you all a deep dive into the into what you want with any archetype that we describe? Well, then you're in the wrong place. This is Table for Two, a magic <laughs> podcast about bullshit. <laughs> Whoa! That's the first time we, we dropped a... Uh... Dropped, uh, a bomb. Oh, yeah. bomb. We just we just finished seeing uh, kids. You should close your ears for a second. John fucking Wick, man. It, it, number three, Parabellum, for war. It was epic. It was epic. Uh, you know, I there, there's all sorts of kinds of movies you can make where people are killing people, and you know, there's the hero just like against incredible odds and fights back. And obviously, Keanu Reeves, a Canadian superstar, is you know a, a great action hero. But I think one of the real things that makes the movie is the world. It immerses you completely into that world, and you just there's that you know these assassins everywhere, and they just have an infrastructure that you, is believably kind of in the background of our own world. Yeah, I, I very much enjoyed the movie. And uh, yeah, you're kind of like you know the concierge at the hotel, and I'm I'm kind of like Winston, you know. <laughs> I just sit back, drink my my, my cappuccino, and, and have you do all the work. <laughs> so. Even though we just recorded last Thursday, yeah, we're, we're back with some background music. Um, we've got some people are walking in the back, spider webs in the background. But yeah, we I, I'm heading off to Providence this week, so we're recording a little bit early. Plus, doing a day in the life of an MPL Magic the Gathering player, and a little, you know. So decided to do the podcast today, max it out, you know. Plus, KYT said he had a headache tomorrow, so. <laughs> <laughs> so you're heading down. Well, what's your team? What's your team for Providence? I got... My team has two Pro Tour champions on it. Myself, Tom Martell. It's got, you know, one player of the year, Mike Sigrist. And uh, two MPL me- members, myself and Mike Sigrist. And uh, a lot of GP champions. I think Siggy's won two. Tom's won three. I've won four. <laughs> Who's counting? But, you know, it's a, it's a sweet squad. Uh, Tom's not actually qualified for the next Mythic Championship. In fact, the last Mythic Championship in London was the first time he wasn't qualified for one since kind of he came back. And so it was, it was, he told me it was a weird experience sitting on the sidelines. And he, he on Twitter, he rooted for two people, me and Matt Sperling. And uh, I think you probably know how that turned out. But holy crap, is you know his rooting powers are strong because Matt Sperling was an unlikely person to make it in the top eight when you know going in the last round. I was pretty sure he's going to end up ninth. He was pretty sure he's going to end up ninth. And then suddenly Yuya Watanabe was called up to the <laughs> judges' station. So, yeah, Tom, Tom's one of my, my really good friends. Maybe one of my one of my best friends. No offense, KYT. But <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to get to hang with him because he lives out in California, so I don't get to see him that much. And then Siggy, I get to see a bit more often because we're at the tournaments together. And he lives actually right around there, kind of halfway point between Boston and Providence. And I get to see him and his family. The his, his daughter Annabella called me her favorite boy. Wow. Which was, you know, nice. And then she kept poking me and telling me to be a monster again. Be a monster. And it was, it was fun. A lot of a lot of effort. I don't know how he handles having two children at once. Uh, but I, I got certainly, asked. you know, it was, it, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to hanging with the, the Sig family. Obviously, on paper, anyone who has followed Magic for... for any amount of time, well, a reasonable amount of time for the past five years would think your team is star-studded. Uh, at this point, any prep or total reliance on raw talent? Uh, yeah, I would describe us as all washed up, you know. 
Siggy and I barely play Magic. Tom never had any real skills, you know. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I Obviously, there's a, a fair bit of talent in our team, but uh, both Siggy and I have been, I think, playing a fair bit of Limited lately. In fact, today's stream, Tom Martell stopped by and to, to check it out. He, he's checked out the last couple because he was in uh, Taiwan for League of Legends Worlds, I believe. And so he was on, finally on a, on a time schedule where he could see my, my stream. Uh, I, I, I stream Tuesdays and Thursdays from 8 a.m. Sorry, from 9 a.m. Eastern to 2 p.m. Eastern, hashtag sponsored. And uh, you, should, you should check it out. Insane. I-N-S-A-Y-N-E. Pain, <laughs> like my name. On, on Twitch, so yeah, check it out. And now, a word from the rest of our sponsors. Were <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys doing any any like concrete things to prepare? Uh, well, I get in Thursday night, and Tom gets in Friday. So nothing, we'll, we'll, nothing yet. Nothing yet. Okay. No, we'll probably do a team seal or two. That's usually my experience with teams. Uh, the, the team Grand Prix won with Rich Hohen and Mike Atron, both Stone Cold Limited Masters. I'd never met Atron before first time I met him was breakfast in the hotel lobby in Kyoto where he was the only other white guy there so I'm like Mike Atron I presume and it was yes indeed Mike Atron but and uh, he's like oh you must be Alex <laughs> then Rich came to breakfast later and who he was the glue of the team but yeah Atron had told me like a couple days before in Theros Limited that he didn't know bestowed creatures could attack if you killed their host so I wasn't, didn't have super high hopes for that Grand Prix that I just flown across the world for, but we ended up winning it because natural talent goes pretty far, especially when it comes to limited. The games are kind of all different in some ways. You need to know the, a little bit of like the speed of the format and you need to know what tricks exist, but after that, like you're pretty good. And I know Tom was preparing a bit because he was doing some commentary for a Twitch tournament, which was limited. And then, of course, Siggy and I prepared for the Pro Tour and have been playing some on Arena. So, well, we'll we'll, we'll take we'll we'll take this tournament by storm, I hope, and and get Tommy that that qualification with the Mythic Championship in Barcelona. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I feel like Tom. Maybe I I remember. I feel like I read some of his tweets where it felt like he was content with his Magic career being short of Hall of Fame and, and ready to move on? Or am I mistaking him for someone else? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't actually know if he's tweeted that, but if he has, it's outright lies. The man the man wants wants it. He's, he's always hungry for more. And any anybody who's had a just shy of Hall of Fame career and tells you that they're satisfied with that is lying to you, okay? that's People don't get shy of Hall of Fame careers by not wanting it. Not wanting it desperately deep in their bones, right? Like... I think anybody who really gets to the top level of Magic at some point desperately wanted it because otherwise they would have put their energy towards someone, some, something else. And I think even for brilliant people to get that good at Magic, there's a lot of brilliant people who are trying very hard. So you have to actually put an effort, you know, if not at all times, at some point. Like, I talk a lot how I'm very lazy, but there was a point in time where I was completely completely involved in magic every, you know I still think about it enormously I still read tons of articles every day and with streaming I play more than I have in a, a while but I used to back in the day in my first few years playing magic I would just play absurd amounts I was just hopelessly addicted and in love with the game and really obsessed to an unhealthy degree I think often it takes an unhealthy level of obsession to really get up there and so to kind of just come a little short of the game's ultimate honor it it never feels good. You can see in this documentaries talking about Chris Pakula and how you know 
how inflamed he was that he didn't get there into the Hall of Fame. And who knows, you know, if if how many cheaters voted against him or whatever. And no, I, he's kind of a controversial Hall of Fame candidate because some people feel he's obvious inclusion, some people feel he's obviously non-inclusion. So it's very very high level divisiveness based on what people think the Hall of Fame's about. I think I think it's tough for me just because like for me it's just hard because in in these other hall of fames you don't get rewards for getting voted in the 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 reward is being part of the hall of fame i feel and that honor is really honorable and here i can't it's hard for me to to disassociate and like feel weird that's that i'm granting someone free entry to at the time free entry to all future pro tours right well i think it is free entry to all future pro tours that's why they changed it to mythic championships yeah. uh no but I, I think there's still going to be some kind of invites for hall of fame but you know nobody really knows for sure what it is going forward uh i think one of the big things that you know that the fact that pro tours award money to last place sorry mythic championships award money to last place uh has something to do with it that you know they want to be able to calculate how much money they're budgeting out but I, in, in terms of your point, most sports, let's say, right, you, you have a clear start of when you start playing and when you retire. And then when you, re- you retire, usually because you can't play anymore, because you age out often physically. Magic isn't quite like that. People retire because they choose not to play anymore, because something else in their life takes precedence. And usually in the past, this is because there wasn't enough money in Magic to keep doing it as a profession. Now there kind of is, so you see few, fewer people actually quitting for that reason. But... The people who really are good at magic are always going to be good at magic. John Finkel, when he's 60 years old, is still going to be a brilliant magic player. He's going to be slower than he is now. He's going to definitely be slower than he was back in 2000s. But, you know, he still has years and years of experience, and I think the experience is very valuable. And just, you know, he has he has shortcuts that allow him to beat the fact that younger people think faster. Uh and you, you keep seeing him put up resort results on the, at the PT, which, you know, not all the Hall of Famers do, but a lot of those who prepare really do. And a lot of them are just the top players now. And I, I do agree from a perspective of other, these other Hall of Fames, it's very different. But, like, it's mostly for these physical games, and I think a mental game is pretty different. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't be – I don't want to fall in the trap of people just, just, like, compare too much, right, because they are different. But I think, like – Obviously, in my mind, I see BDM as a Hall of Famer, but I don't want to grant. I don't need. He doesn't need to be granted free entry to all future Mythic Championships, right? But he yeah. deserves to be recognized as an all-time great in the community. I think it would be awesome if they made not just a Pro Tour Hall of Fame, which is what they have right now, but a Magic: The Gathering Hall of Fame, and they actually made it like a physical room or whatever, Wizards and right. Regent or something, where there's like plaques and pictures of people and stuff. You know, I think that would be cool, and I think that's a great place to kind of enshrine Richard Garfield, you know, a BDM, uh, Randy Bueller, like Mark Mark Rosewater. You know, that a lot of the, these people have had a huge impact on Magic, but not necessarily because they're great at playing Magic, and because people are watching them play. You know, even like maybe the, the future commentators, like right now, you know, Kibler's in the in the Magic the, the Pro Tour Hall of Fame, but I could see you know if he keeps commentating like he is now maybe ends up in the Magic Hall of Fame if, if such a thing exists. I think that would be pretty cool, but of course, I'm not the one paying the bills to make that happen. I'm just one of the people who is a fan of, of the game and also 
I don't I would not see myself really being inducted into that you know I haven't done huge amounts in ways of let's say community contributions which it always feels weird to me that we're supposed to weigh those with Pro Tour results at the same time for the Pro Tour Hall of Fame, right? Right. And it would make much more sense if there was a separate thing for that. Because right now it just feels a lot like, hey, who wrote articles that they were paid to write? And that's... I don't think that's necessarily community contribution. Right. And, and I feel like we see in the votes where some people argue Sam Black and Jerry have similar... Uh, stats, but Jerry's way more popular, even though they have similar stats. They both write articles for SCG. They both have podcasts that are pretty successful. Right, but Jerry started earlier, yeah. and but Jerry does more like he, before he, he not only wrote stuff for SCG, he had his own blog, separate blog for additional content. So he's doing extra stuff, and I feel like he reaches out more via Twitter or in real person uh, than Sam, which is why um when it came to the vote, like, Jerry had way more votes that, than Sam, even though Jerry obviously, uh, at the time, fell short. That was before... I think that was still before his second top... No, his... It's just, he, he has three top eights now. Or, and I think it was after his, his third. It was this okay. most recent Hall of Fame season, uh, where both Sam and Jerry had three. I think, though, that... There's, there's a variety of reasons why I think Jerry got more of the vote. He is, definitely is more famous, and I think he has... There's this idea of certainly of him having done more community contributions, which I think is true. You know, uh, not that Sam hasn't c- contributed. Right, but, right, right. I'm not. But also, like Jerry having the win, I think a lot of people do value having a win. And just in in general, I think people feel like Jerry maybe is more connected in the in the community at large. Though I think Sam would like to be one of the things Sam always argues for is he he wants basically the, anybody to be allowed to play at a PTQ. Not because he wants to help his friends to qualify or whatever, but because he just feels that by pre- preventing people from playing in all areas of play, you kind of fracture communities, and he thinks it's important that you know the top-level players and the up-and-comers kind of get to mingle. That's something I definitely felt like when I was an up-and-coming player, I just didn't encounter any of the Canadian pros, like the top talent. So I felt like it was a lot longer road to get to improve myself because everybody always says the best way to improve is to play with players who are better than you. And it's sometimes at some point it becomes hard to find those players because again they want to play with players better than them. And uh, I think that his solution wouldn't actually work, but I admire the the idea behind it at least. Uh, and yeah, I mean, community contributions are. Something like Willie Edel, who, you know, had a huge impact on Brazilian magic and kind of pushes up the community and really helps people get together and work together. That's the type of thing I value because I, I did a, something somewhat similar on a much lower scale with, with the Canadian community kind of when I was starting on the pro scene and tried, you know, inviting every qualified Canadian onto a team to work together. And it's hard. It's really hard because, you know, it's, it's hard to test with people who are or a lower skill level. It's hard to organize such a big group. Uh, it's, and you, it, costs, it costs you. It's a personal sacrifice. And so I really respect what Willie did there. And so that's one of the reasons I voted for him, despite you know he has four top eights, but the rest of his numbers aren't necessarily so good. And I figured that his numbers probably would be better if he was just working with Channel Fireball with Paulo like the whole time, right? Yeah, I've just heard stories. It's not so like I was just wanted to add to your point. It, it, it can't be just articles that you're you're paid for. I think I heard stories of Will Edel. Basically, 
taking these kids under his wing and, and planning their flights and stuff like that and doing like extra stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I, we don't hear it because there's even more of a language barrier, I think, with the Japanese community. But basically, every Pro Tour or Mythic Championship, I would see kind of... I, I worked with Shuhei a lot. And often he would say, oh, I have to go. I have to help these guys check into their hotel because they don't know English and they, they're coming in and they don't know what they're doing. And he would come and he would help them and he would walk them through stuff. And it's just kind of a subtle thing that you don't really think about if, you know, English is your native language, that's the language of travel, you can kind of go anywhere, and even if people don't necessarily speak great English, you can manage, right? You'll find someone who can you can communicate with, and especially you go to any hotel in the world and somebody will speak English, but it's, it's not the case for Japanese, and just little things like that that cost you personal, your time, like the hours in the day before a pro tour are incredibly valuable, and just every every pro tour if you're going to go and do that that's that's something that helps the community and it costs you something and so i really admire people who do that you know who who actually do something for no gain personal gain at all it's not like these people are really going to be able to pat their back later right they're they're newcomers it's unlikely anything's going to happen but they still stick together they still have this sense of community and that they're going to help out the new people in the community and that's great yeah i just want to make sure i didn't want to come across as you just made me think about that, the, the, the Sam Black thing, just because of the article thing. And it oh, you're saying you don't, didn't mean to shit talk Sam Black? Cause <laughs> it sure sounded like it, you, you, didn't have, you weren't going to vote for him for Hall of Fame with, um, your, with your vote. I didn't vote for Jerry either, though. Oh, wow. I don't think at the time. Actually, uh, I don't you, remember You voted anymore. for Jerry. Come on. Lot, He's your boy. Also, He's your boy. I think it's because I, I listened to Pro Points podcast where Sam, Sam thought his... Uh, Who else is on that podcast? PV. Okay. And your boy, Mike Sigas. And Sigurd. my boy, Mike Sigas. <laughs> Shout out to Pro Point Podcast. And there's discussion that their, their resume were similar, but to someone who's like outside of, I don't want to say clique, because clique has like this negative connotation, connotation. But from me, the outside circle, uh, I felt Jerry just did more content and, and outside of the. Right, I'll just start writing articles for Star City or whatever. Or he'd, he'd like volunteer his time to be on like the magic show or. I guess he, he'd happily go on any... maybe not Wizards anymore, for a while, too. Maybe not anymore, but he'd probably actively go on, on, on a randoms podcast, even though they had no listeners. Was this your podcast? <laughs> Are you talking about yourself? Is this First Strike, the A-Team, the KYT show, the Men of Matt? I don't know, actually. Okay, that was not podcast. our show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, apologies to anybody who... I, podcast I named who wasn't actually KYTs, but yeah, I understand that, though. I think you you are closer with Jerry than you are with Sam, so yeah. I don't think you're completely impartial when it comes to this because you're just going to pay attention more to the things that mention your boy, you know? Right, right. Uh, though I do agree with you, I think it's you, you are just getting a bit of an echo chamber kind of there. But I think I think it's a pretty interesting point, though, talking about, let's say, writing articles as community contributions. Like, there's a variety of reasons that I haven't written particularly many articles primary one is we've talked about many times can you remember what it is because you're lazy that is correct we have a winner <laughs> but also i just when i started magic playing magic i would read articles i would devour them i would i would read so many articles and over and over shout out to mike flores and uh it just would learn a lot about that like i think paulo writes you know some of the best magic articles and he still does and they teach you something. Once you read one of his articles, you learn something. You know, they're teaching you to fish. 
but it feels more and more the articles nowadays are just giving you a fish because that's what people want. They're more and more getting clickbaity and they're getting just, here's the content, just devour this and then buy cards from us because if, you, if your website posts a deck list with a sideboard and a sideboard guide, people are going to want to play that and they're on your website, they're going to go and buy it. So it works for the store and the customers is quick and easy. You don't have to do too much work, you don't have to do too much thinking. And I think the people, the thing most people hate doing the most is thinking. So, obviously this is something that I hate. I hate going to websites and now I feel like there's very little content for me. Which is fair because, you know, most of the stuff is just like, I, ha I still have to do my magic research. I still have to know which deck lists are on the top of the metagame, what things are shifting around. Why Command the Dreadhorde is good this week, and the next week it's Esper Planeswalkers that's good. Why everybody's moving back to Mono Red, because people are playing more anti-Planeswalker cards or whatever. But it just feels like the next generation of Magic player does, isn't going to have the tools that they need to actually get to the next level, because they have nowhere to learn. It's just like what people would always say, oh, play Magic the Gathering online, that's how you get good. And I remember John Finkel said, yeah, that's how you get good, but you won't get ever get great playing Magic the Gathering online only. You have to play with other players and see what they do and talk to them because a million games against a average... Games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, here we're talking about, I guess not a million games. If you look at the, the mock competitor stats, it's only something like, I don't know, 43,000 matches or something for, for misplaced ginger. But you can play over and over again against people who are your level or... or usually significantly below if you're playing against a random opponent and you don't actually gain that much you'll gain something because i believe that everybody has something to teach you but you have there's hugely diminishing returns and kind of to get that you know you get up to 90 percent if you want to get to 90 percent playing a ton of magic gathering online or now arena especially you get some great games in high mythic but i think you really do need to to push those last few percent you need to play with people in real life and talk and exchange ideas you can't get the same experience i think just playing online you're making me i'm still debating over the, the previous topic Which is one? article writing community contribution if you're being paid for it well you are still contributing something to the community and in return they're contributing dollars through a <laughs> website to you they're paying your paychecks i mean I, like should it like should from I my diminish, personal perspective, saying, I don't should, I don't value it as highly. Right, should like, I be diminishing someone's? So now there's a different thing. Some people have these their own blog, right, where they put out content basically for free because they're not making any advertising money. Let's be real, you know, what are they making? Fifty cents maybe an article they post or something, and those people, I think that is community contributions. When someone puts out a free article talking about the community, like there I think they are the, the purpose they're posting that like on Reddit Lucas Esper Bertut would always post tournament reports after tournament reports he's not getting paid for those he's posting them there for the community for free to use without having to look through any ads any of that nonsense and and he, he would do a great job he would give an inside look on his preparation and he works hard you know and I think that's great. I count that as community contribution. But I think if you're writing for a paycheck, and so many, so many of these articles, <laughs> six reasons why Maldrifter's the best blue common or whatever, you know, like, 
what are you actually getting from that article? Number one, it flies or whatever. Number two, it draws you cards. <laughs> Number three, it has multiple ways you can cap. Like, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't actually gain you anything or like one way you, you know, two t- tips with sideboarding that you haven't thought of. It's like, remember to sideboard differently against different opponents. Number two, drink plenty of water when you're going to a tournament. Why does it have anything to do with sideboarding? It doesn't. But everybody always writes an article about drinking water. And I think there are still a lot of deep strategic articles to be written. In fact, whenever I have an idea of one that I didn't think existed, I would write a note note in my in my phone of of that. And I was thinking, you know, if I ever got to a point where I was forced to write articles for for whatever reason, that I would I would write some of those that stuff. I, I want to develop my, my, my thoughts on what you said. Like, I know they're the laughing stock at this point, but when Frontier was starting over, there's so many people that what's decided... What's Frontier? <laughs> a format that doesn't exist anymore. But what's the basic, basic premise? <laughs> is it like a commander variant, or is it like a modern variant? It's like a modern variant. Okay. And Those are the only two options. <laughs> Otherwise, I would know what it is. Um, I don't know if you're trolling me or not, but no, clearly you're that, trolling that, me. That's... that's 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 my specialty. The not known if it's a troll. It, it is a troll. I know what it is. It's but, like it's like more recent modern, right? Basically. But people like uh, so you would okay. So you this would what I'm going to describe is I guess correct me if I'm wrong. What you consider like the apex of community community contribution, where someone like Matt Mealing starts a website, a podcast on that format, gathers deck lists for that format, makes it popular at the local face to face games Toronto store. I think that's what he did, but. That would be on his own free time, making no money. Yeah, that's community contributions. At, at However, if the store is paying him money to produce content, paying him money to make this new format or something, then I, I'm. That I still I, might be community, but less. It, it de- right? Yeah, it's less. It's still something. It depends if they're like. I, I, I really discount it, give it a huge discount. I think if you're doing something for the purpose of making profit versus to actually help the community. For example, you host another podcast, First Strike, okay? Do you get paid for doing this podcast? I do not get paid. I don't get... I get paid by, by the, the patrons support the show. Right. Okay, the patrons support the show. Right. So would you still do the show if you received zero money from doing it? It might come to a point where it's it's no longer feasible depending on, on my time. Right. Like, but your but your motivations for, for doing it are to help the community to put some this thing out or is it to to ideally make some more income for yourself? That's a that's a tough question. Like I for think, instance, you know, I, I I would not be doing this podcast if I wasn't making thousands and thousands of dollars an episode, <laughs> you know. Like Right now, you know, if I wasn't hanging out with you on your yacht, you know, listening to some tunes in the background, we <laughs> we wouldn't even be talking. You know, but uh, I mean, I the thing is, ideally, you know, anything you put work into, you you can eventually monetize, right? Like when I first started playing Magic, it was a hobby, and now I'm making pretty reasonable money doing it. So I think but I I do think that like if you were not interested in writing articles at all, and you're just going to do it just for a paycheck that I don't consider a community contribution. The question is, where do you draw the line there? How do you know right. what someone's motivations are? Right, so so for, for me, when you know, when I first started Mandoprived, I had no no foresight. I didn't have a business plan. I wasn't thinking about making money at all. You just wanted to connect the Canadian community, right? And, right. and bring out like the talent that you knew was there. 
You have an eye for talent. That's what you have. But but now things have changed because why my answer is, is tough because now that I'm married and have to provide, pay the bills and stuff more than I did so. Living, uh, I, get, I, I didn't live in my parents' basement, but basically I did. Yeah, it was their um, attic, right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but now that I have, like, I have to, it's harder to justify the time. They're like, why are you spending two hours editing multiple articles for the community, right? When you could be doing something that actually helps us pay for something. Cause, yeah, or cause going we, and, like, figure skating together or something, right? Like... <laughs> Or yeah, it, whatever. Like some swing, some, some swing dance classes, yeah, whatever. Doing some activity together. Yeah, it's, it's you, different. You, now. Ha, you feel you have to justify your time much more. Right. So, your time is not just your own. So if if for me, like that's why first strike has to. I think, like people have to be. How I want I want it to be a show that people want to listen to. I want to provide value, or else it's like it's not worth the time to even. Right. Um, no, that that makes that makes sense. So so things so have the, shifted a bit. But yeah, so so it's it's tougher to answer. Though I obviously still do things uh, to boost the community. Yeah, like this show, they, right? You're not yeah. getting paid anything for this. Why are you doing this one? What's your what's your what's your reasoning with with your wife? Are you like I'm just hanging out with my good friend Alex? We're just having a chat. Yeah, he's treating me to a, to dinner and a movie. She's like, you better put out. You know. Um, yeah, I just I could I could be a lot more carefree. And for the I, record. KYT treated me to dinner in a movie. <laughs> I bought him coffee, though. I bought him Man, coffee. this is such an interesting topic, and uh, we're just being, like, this is just... Oh, we're just skimming on, the surface, and, yeah, there's, and there's a lot there, and I don't think we're going to be able to salt, answer it in this yeah. podcast. I wonder what, you know, if anybody else thinks differently about it, like, you know, my opinion is definitely biased by my perspective of, you know, being someone who could potentially write articles for money, but doesn't for, you know, a few reasons, and like the primary ones are laziness and <laughs> the feeling that I don't wouldn't really get to write the articles I want to write. I would just write have to write deck list after deck list after deck list and that would also require me putting in a lot more time refining deck lists that I wouldn't necessarily want to be that interested in refining uh, because I wouldn't feel comfortable putting out a deck list that I haven't played with or tested. Whereas I have read articles from other people, I'm not going to name names, but who've just basically found a deck list and then wrote like, Snapcaster Mage, this card is great at flashing back the variety of spells you have in your deck. <laughs> Lightning Bolt, being able to target creature, player, or planeswalker, this is a very flexible card and can function as removal or win the game when your opponent's low. See Snapcaster Mage for even more value. And, like, nobody's actually gaining any much information from that unless they've never played with any of those cards before. But people still do that, and they still get paychecks for it. And I don't, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. People need to make money. But is that a community contribution? Yeah, it's a, I think it's a tough question. I'm struggling, I'm struggling to figure out, like, how I want to answer this question. Just because... Because now, like, if someone were to content create, I would tell them to have at least some semblance of a long-term plan uh, in mind if they if they want to go hard, if they feel like they're going to go hard into it, like, five years down the road. Um, because I felt like not thinking about it and not, like, I was just mindlessly paying, like, monthly hosting fees, domain name things, where I was making no money. Uh, that's when, like, making YouTube videos were, was really new and... And I wasn't making nothing for it, and I 
paid money to get a bunch of t-shirts made. So I did a lot of things that... What's your Patreon again? <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of things that, in retrospect, I regret, even though like people were grateful that, that I did that stuff. But I think, like... Yeah, so that's why I struggle. Like, I, I'm proud of the stuff. I'm proud to be seen as a strong community uh, member, like someone that contributed Canadian magic a lot. Uh, but at the same time, I, yeah, now it's like, I don't know. Like, like yeah, well, if, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of pe the people who do support you, a lot of it is because you had that presence and you have that reputation and not unwarranted. Like. Did you know that my mom, for example, is a, one of your Patreon sub supporters? Yeah, yeah. I think she gives you like how much? Ten dollars a month or something? <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I, I I love it, you know. But she she's just like, look, I just want to support Kyt and whatever he does. Like, even if she doesn't listen to First Strike podcast. She, I think she listens to this one. So shout out, mom. But uh, she, you know, she just wants to support you because she views that as supporting Canadian magic and that you've been an icon for that for a long time. And. Uh, I, th I think that's great, like, but in terms of, you know, what, at what point is something community contributions and what point is it just you making a living and it's, it is, it's a blurry line. Like, for instance, I, right now I'm streaming 10 hours a week and that's the minimum that I'm required to for my influencer contract. So am I a community contributor from that? I would say no, but I would say that before when I was streaming every day, seven hours a day, that I was because... There, you know, I wasn't really getting paid for it. There was there, the only incentive there was to let's say build my brand, which is you know not an altruistic thing. But I was providing a lot to the community, or t distracting from it, depending on your view on my streams. But <laughs> uh, there, you know, without without payment, and it's it's an interesting line, though. You know, you could argue that neither one is is contributions. You could argue that they both are. And that's why I, I think it's a weird thing to put in your in the Hall of Fame, you know, requirements or or factors like. Oh, for you me, wrote a lot of articles. Like yeah. what? <laughs> for me, when I vote for Hall of Fame, I told you this before, is that I view that the reason I have a vote, and not just someone else who can you know look at the numbers and look at the the community contribution and vote for someone. I've actually interacted with a lot of these players. I've played against them. I've watched them play, and. I have an idea of what I, my view of their integrity and their skill is, and so I can weigh those things where not necessarily anybody can, and so I assume other people have the other areas covered, and I, I vote kind of on, on that, that more. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's up to everybody kind of to find their own thing. That's why we vote instead of just looking at statistics, right? But I'm kind of excited that now I'm almost eligible for the Hall of Fame. You know, I, I've got the minimum two Sunday appearances. I got the minimum pro points. And uh, I just need to wait till 10 years after my first pro tour. <laughs> pro points are going away. And sadly, I did so well in London, I couldn't get my goal of reaching 420 lifetime pro points because I overshot it. <laughs> I have 422 coming in this next weekend. So I'm, I'm screwed. I'd love to hear uh, if our listeners get tweet at us what they think about this this topic. Um, going back to what you said about content, it's interesting because um, I still I still back to the last show. I, I still dabble a lot into poker uh, content and I consume a lot. And, this is a Magic uh, the Gathering podcast. <laughs> it's specifically Magic the Gathering Arena podcast. Oh yeah. So we're not supposed to be talking and, about uh, uh, the the P O K E R <laughs> word, you know. 
So, it's okay for me to say swear words, but not that one. That one, no. <laughs> uh, Doug Polk, a, a famous uh, poker player, he started upswing poker, and he felt like he was asked like if he could construct a course purely for the benefit of the viewer, uh, of the subscriber, what, how, how you would mold the course. It'd be like 100% theory and everything. But customers enjoy play and explain videos where they get to, where he records himself playing a live session, but that's, in his opinion, and I agree with him, it's less educational because you're just watching him play, not him going like step by step through the high level concepts that you need to learn. Like you're watching sort of like, you're just watching them play, you're, like, specific situations. Whereas he'd rather teach someone, he thinks more beneficial to teach someone a, a grand strategy. And I feel like it's the same thing here, where like, that's what the viewers want. They want the deck list. They want just a straight right. cyborg guy to go through the tournament. And because that's what the numbers show, that's what the sites go out and get. Yeah, well, right. in a lot of ways, people don't necessarily want what's best for them. Like, right. you know, I, 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 when we went to this cafe, I ordered mochaccino, okay? that. You know, regular black coffee would be better for me, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted a mocha. But <laughs> I can tell you that's what you wanted too. But, you know, the, the, the point is that often we don't have, know what our best interests are, right? You know, you can, you can take this to politics, but I'm not going to go there even though there's an obvious parallel. But one, one thing is that I think the perception of what is helpful to you and what gains you stuff is... And in many ways, just the perception is more important than the reality. I think a lot of people perceive that they gain a lot more from reading this decklist article where the Bat Nexus decklist is explained, you know, some a couple of ways to play these matchups is explained and the cyborg guy is just given. And they think, oh, this is great. This gains me a huge amount of percentage in my next tournament. Now, they're not entirely wrong. The thing is... At this point in time, everybody has access to these resources, right? You're not getting, you're not going to pull ahead of anybody else, really, from having that. Only the unprepared people. But to win a tournament, you need to beat the prepared people, also not not just the unprepared. Uh, and you're just getting advantage for that one tournament. You know, you can check out your subscription to whatever website fills your fancy for the next tournament and find a deck there and do that. And that's what these websites want. They want you buying the next deck, buying the next deck, and because that's how they get money, right? But to actually improve at magic noticeably so that you, you, know, you, don't, you don't necessarily need these articles and so that when you get one of these articles, you can get a lot more out of it. You need these theory articles, but they're a lot harder to, to, to gain something from. You have to put in more work. And it's often more subtle the way you gain. It's just super obvious. Look, I have this bad Nexus deck, and I have these sideboard plans, and I did it, and I won my match. That's obvious. You see it right there. Oh, if I, you know, this card that I boarded in was good, and it managed to win with it. You can just see it. It's observable. But, like, an article about how you should, like, you know, de decide, figure out how you attack and block and stuff... It's kind of more subtle, you know, how often is it going to come up, you know, only when it, if it comes up, you're going to level up, and, and but it's, you know, you're still going to screw it up a few times, and eventually you'll get it, you'll gain something, but you'll have that forever. And I think from an expert's perspective, you can, cl you can clearly see, because you have more knowledge, and more wisdom, kind of, than the people where you were, you know, five, ten years ago, that this is the stuff that they really do need to level up but they can't necessarily see it themselves. And it's so much easier and quicker and digestible to just find a deck list, copy it, and go and play a tournament. 
And then, you know, you're like, wow, I used Final Nub's Mono Red Sideboard Guide on a top eight of this PTQ. I'm ecstatic. Well, you know, maybe if you had the access to that, but you'd also, you know, read 10 articles on, on theory and stuff and, like, practiced a bunch and thought about it and talked to people about it, then you actually would have, like, leveled enough that you would have made, noticed some play that you didn't notice in the top eight that could have led to you winning the tournament. Who knows, you know, maybe you'd lose the tournament, you would have a bad deck, but you'd learn enough that you could get better the next time. Like, my first ever Pro Tour, I did badly. <laughs> but I learned so much, and I just left with the understanding that I had so much more left to learn, so much to go, and that kind of, I put a lot of the Pro Tour players on a pedestal, but the average Pro Tour player was mostly still kind of bad, but that the top people were so incredibly good that I had so much more to go, and... I kind of used that knowledge to, to push myself kind of to a point where I think I had a little bit of an epiphany and kind of leveled up. I find often in Magic that when you level up, it's, it's, it is like leveling up in a video game that you get a certain number of experience and boom, you know, a little flash and you have, you're suddenly way stronger. It's not like, not necessarily a gradual improvement. There's sometimes gradual improvements and then, boom, a big jump. Sometimes the jump actually starts going down because you, you start noticing all your mistakes that you're making and you start tilting off that you're making so many mistakes. And that kind of makes you play worse until finally you get to the point where you can actually fix those mistakes and then that's when you go up. It's weird, it's not, it's not neither art nor science, it's a little bit of both, in my opinion. But yeah, we're not supposed to go so deep on magic strategy and stuff. This is, <laughs> this is, this is not about the, a podcast for that stuff. I keep having flashback of, one, of uh, just a simple limited, okay, I, I was considered, for my local store, the best player, um, for the longest time, so a, a, a big fish in a tiny little like <laughs> tank, I guess. At some point, just because, hey, I'll be frank, I I had access to, I just knew where to look to have the best deck list, like the dojo or whatever. I was just net decking blue green madness and stuff like that. So for FNM, I was always considered the best player, and even for limited, um, how'd but, that work out for you? I, I don't know. You got <laughs> nothing, right? You got nothing. <laughs> but. I, I, I recall like realizing, I think maybe moments later where I did the strategic mistake. I, I just learned to, to like attack a lot and limited, but then I just, I would, here's a mistake I would always do, I think, before I realized it was attacking with a 4-4 into like a 2-2 and a 3-3. And just like after the, tra like. It's an easy I, way to trade your 4-4 for a 3-3, yeah. I would just like bin it. And I think that happened for years until I realized, like, what that that was stupid. So oh, you have, there's, it's unbelievable how many people do that. They just they don't think through things. Like again, thinking is is hard. It hurts the brain. <laughs> Most people do not like doing it. <laughs> you know, attack all the time, and they're like double block. They were surprised. Like like the good players were surprised that I would do that a lot, and like. The bad players, they would either not double block or, I don't know, but the good players, they would be like, okay. Like, they figured I'd have a trick, yeah. and they'd be shocked when I don't have a trick. It's like, why did he trade his 4-4 or 3-3? What a sick bluff. What a sick bluff. <laughs> and then later, I don't know how long it took when I was replaying games in my mind. I'm like, okay, I can't, you know, that's not how I'm supposed to play. Unless I, yeah. I, I want to bluff like Bosu, I guess. Yep. Freaking Bosu. But, yeah, I mean... In the game of Magic, it's much more fun to attack than not to attack. It's much more fun to cast your cards than to not cast your cards. But most there's a and most of the time, attacking and casting your cards is correct, if it's you know close. But 
there are times where not casting your card spells and not attacking are, are correct, and those are often the trickiest things to find. Sometimes not attacking is obvious, but the, the, the amount of times where someone can, on unlimited, let's say, on turn three, can cast a removal spell on a 2-2 two -two or a 2-3 or whatever, or just do nothing, I think I'll... It's... it's very hard for me to go and watch a game like that and to see someone not cast their removal spell. And when they don't, it could even be wrong. But it usually leads to me thinking that higher, more of that player because they at least have the thought process to think about not casting it. Even if it was the wrong decision, they at least, you know, they have a reason, they have a thought process behind it rather than kind of just instinct of, oh, I have mana, I have a spell, I'll cast it. A huge amount of games in Limited are won by the fact that someone has, like, let's say, Mortify in turn 3 versus a 3-3 three, three, and doesn't do it, takes 3 down to 17, down to 14, whatever, and then plays a 4-4 a four, four, or a 3-5 or whatever, and suddenly that 3-3 three, three doesn't matter anymore. The next person plays a 6-6 six, six, and then they can kill that, you know? Whereas a lot of people just won't even notice that they've lost those games when, when they kill that 3-3 three, three, because that's just what you do. They cast the removal spell. They don't want to not spend their mana, not use their card, take 3 damage. Those are horrible things. And then they don't realize, oh, I just ended up losing to 6-6. Six, six, I couldn't answer. Well, more like, how lucky they got a 6-6 six, six or yeah, whatever I yeah. did. <laughs> oh, I flooded out. Yeah. Or, you know, especially when you use your cards on less important cards, you, you're more prone to flooding out than if you... You know, ignore the cards that don't matter. I think that's kind of the most kind of golden rule of magic, I could say, is focus on what matters and play around that. Like, find find that the focal point of the game and focus around that. And if your opponent isn't focusing around that, if they're fighting a lesser battle, you'll win the war even if you lose the small battles, right? Even if you go to five life, if that's not what the deck's game's about, if it's about who's going to deck out first or something, and you manage to, to like get one more decking in or something, you know, who knows? That you'll you'll end up winning if you can stabilize the board. So, it you know, if you have to exchange five of your cards to kill their one rare, but the rest of the deck you can handle with the other stuff, you know, then you'll still win. It you have to find what the game is about and focus on that. And if you can find that avenue, you'll win. Um, I think there's one thing I okay. Lots of high-level strategy here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's after watching John Wick. I'm kind of all pumped up, high on adrenaline, you know. Like, you know, I just saw... Okay, spoiler alert. John oh, Wick kill a lot of people. Oh, a lot of people. Um, so, you know. I, I You saw him kill people too, didn't you? I, I did, I did. <laughs> I think, um, like with a lot of things, sometimes... Um, the, the answer lies somewhere, I guess, I don't know what the quote is, like in the gray area or in the middle, or you have to be balanced or whatever. For example, like sometimes I would not, I would undervalue, I mean, maybe like a classic, maybe it's something that's classic to people that like me that come from chess or something that view the strategy, underrate life. Like we'll just like, we think, we think that the other factors of the board or the game will snowball into a winning game and we don't care about life. Even if it's one, I'm at one, as long as I'm able to sacrifice that for some incremental advantage, I will win. And I think I take that too, too much of an extreme where sometimes I just won't chum block. And for some reason, like that creature can no longer chum block later in the game, whether maybe now they're flying 
geyser their bomb and, and if I block I essentially would have gained five or six life from an attack and I just left it there because I'm like I'll just wait until the very end when I have to to save myself I'll, I'll waste every point of life to gain any other non-life related advantage and I think I took that to an extreme and now I'm more like okay I'm not like in no chum block mode I will be like okay maybe I need to, to block because some other card will become the, the focal point and my ground guy can no longer block. Oh yeah, you've, you've fallen prey to one of the classic blunders along with going in against a Sicilian when death is on the line <laughs> and you know getting involved in a, a land war in Asia. But I think there's a lot of these things that as you get to be a better and better player, there are things you have to abandon, these preconceived notions. Because when you're a starting player, right, every beginning player does a thing of a 3-3 attacks them at 20 and they block with their 2-2 or their 1-1 because they don't want to take damage. So you very quickly learn, hey, life is a resource, don't just throw your creatures under the bus. And then you get to your spot where, you know, hey, this is actually where you should be throwing your creature under the bus. You don't want to go to 5 life here because of X, Y, Z, whatever. I said Z even though I'm Canadian, just for you American listeners out there. So uh, the, the point being that, like, you have to unlearn what you have learned, as Yoda would say. So, the at, you know, learn, as you get better at magic, you learn these rules, right? And, you know, like, card advantage is king. That you, you want to, you know, play removal spells, play spells when you have mana open. You want to, you know, like, block in profitable ways. You want to keep use your life total as a resource. You want to save instants for the last moment. And then when you get to the next level, you realize that all these rules are meant to be broken. They, you know, they're all rules that were really useful frameworks when you were starting out, when magic was just so overwhelmingly complicated because there's so many things going on, so many different rules, that you needed these, these shortcuts in your brain to be able to figure out what play to make. Well, now, sorry, you have to get, get rid of those shortcuts because you're going to the next level. You have to find the 10% of the time that it's wrong to do these things while also still doing them 90% of the time that's right. And that's hard to do. You know, it's like the, the story of someone comes to a Zen, a Zen monk and says, Zen master says, you know, teach me, I want to I learn Zen. And, you know, the, the Zen master and him, they're drinking tea. And it says, pass me your cup. The guy passes him a cup of tea. And the Zen master takes, you know, the teapot and pours it into the, the cup. The cup's already full of tea. It's just overflowing, overflowing. He's like, what are you doing? He says, you are like this cup of tea. You're already, you're already full of knowledge. You have to empty out the cup to get the new knowledge. You have to unlearn what you've learned. You have to abandon all these preconceived notions you have. And that was kind of one thing, like, before Barcelona that I did. I'd, I'd been kind of in a bit of a magic slump. And I decided to reevaluate everything that I thought I knew about magic. All these preconceived notions, basically, all these instincts that I had. And I read a ton of articles, and I decided, you know, I was going to just do things from the ground up. You know, work on the fundamentals. Like, you know, basketball players are supposed to just shoot, shoot, shoot. You know, not any fancy dunks and stuff. That's that's what is really important. And ultimately, it come, most games of magic that are won or lost come down to the fundamentals. And I think that it's really important to not let any overall arching rule kind of guide your actions. You need to always pause and realize, hey, is this, is this actually right or is this one of the exceptions? So like when I, when I take coaching students, one, one tip I tell them is to kind of 
before you make a play, take an extra two seconds more to think it over. Just kind of, because so many times you'll make a play and then immediately it happens to everybody. It's like, oh my God, why did I do that? That's a huge mistake. Now they can just do this. It happens in chess, it happens in magic, it happens in, in every game I've played. You know, I mean, like you move do your, exactly that. It's exactly that. <laughs> and then, you know, you know, there's not necessarily the actual like hand f hitting face, you know, but sometimes like that, I mean, I, I had a chess opponent who like moved their queen to where I could take and it's like, oh no, what have I done? Of course, if I took the queen, they were going to mate me. So I'm, I'm just like, come on, stop Hollywooding me. But, <laughs> but besides that, you know, that's how it is. You just, so you have to, if you take those extra two seconds, maybe that won't happen to you. Maybe you'll actually catch the mistake before you make it. And usually it does take you a mistake to, to be able to learn from it and kind of, you know, not make the mistake again. What I, I try and do, you know, that a lot of people say is make a mistake once and then never make it again, right? But I prefer, even better, is to learn from other people's mistakes. So if you watch a bunch of magic, you see someone make a mistake, put that in the back of your mind and be like, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to cast a draw spell with an art set in play or whatever. Uh, inevitably, you'll still cast a draw spell with an art set in play. It's pretty hard. But just... If you can do that, then do that. And if you can take an extra second or two, you know, I'm not advocating slow play. I think you should still play at a, a very reasonable pace. I think if you're well practiced, you know, that's that's easier to do. But I think one or two seconds extra on a play is not going to, you know, move the meter that much. Just, hey, I want to double check, you know. A great Emmanuel Lasker quote that I love saying is, when you see a good move, look for a better one. All right, I, I think... Heading to the tail end, I think our, our, our listeners will complain if we don't address a bit of standard. Um, Command the Dreadhorde, KYT. I mean, we it's call a four it. black, black sorcery, okay? <laughs> All right, I think everybody knows what it does at this point, but it's a very powerful magic card. Turns out, paying life is a resource. <laughs> Valuable. <laughs> Valuable. Who cares about life if you, if you gain advantage? As long as you still have one, man. As long as you still have one at the end. <laughs> Um, I think, uh, actually, I don't have it in front of me. I don't know how well it did overall, but uh, Jim Davis got a deck tech. He finished, I think, in the top, tw like, 21st, if I had to guess. I think he lost three win-ins at the end or something. Okay. Something brutal like that. And Doesn't feel good. Feels bad, man. These Super Friends decks are, are, are making some noise. Um, Buy your Elder Spells while they're still $2. <laughs> Our John Watson tip of the week. So I was actually thinking, is it time where, well, I think an Esper control deck either did well, like it was being shared to me, either in the classic or the or the main, where it was playing Elder Spells main, an Esper walkers type deck, I think. And like, even Mono Red plays Chandra, and you're seeing, I think most decks play some amount of walkers, maybe not, uh, even green, like, I guess I recently played a green-white tokens deck that didn't, didn't seem like it was playing Gideon's, but... Yeah, White Weenie sometimes doesn't play any Planeswalkers. But yeah, I mean, versus this week, I played, at the MPL, I played uh, the four-color Command the Dreadhorde deck, and I played one copy of the Elder Spell main, and I had three more on my sideboard. I, get, I, I think Planeswalkers are on the rise, and I think you should be prepared for them. And, I, and you know, there's a Jeskai Walker deck that's pretty powerful. I like uh, the latest list that uh, Zan Syed, Syed, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Anyway, he's, he's a cool dude. And he got a well-deserved trophy for a pretty sweet list. Uh, but, you know, you don't get to play the Elder Spell if you're not playing black. And I think that's probably where you want to be, unless you're, unless you're playing that deck. Uh, and 
I think I like four copies in your 75. So I was, <laughs> but I, I think it's it's a card that is reasonable to play some copies in your main. And uh, I mean, I I did this week. Uh, you know, you have to check out on Saturday, see how my match went, because I'm not gonna not gonna tell you. But uh, it's a it's a good card. It's, it's powerful, and if you have your own planeswalkers too, you could sometimes do it as a little ritual to get an emblem pretty fast, which is pretty sweet. I think you you told me you did that in, in one of your matches playing the deck. I was like. Maybe you saw me. I was saw my two. I was swinging Strasky. I don't know what to do in the mirror. And immediately I was in a mirror match, in a constructed queue. I think it was competitive, whatever. In, in the mirror, I'm like, okay, this deck's getting popular on Wait, MTGO. Oh, you're playing on MTGO, not MTG Arena. This is an <laughs> MTG Arena podcast. It's not a Midco podcast. <laughs> I'm like, how do I win? And I'm like, okay, Elder Spell, put everything on Raska, ultimate attack, and like the game can can certainly become a. Uh, Whoever has the tempo with early Branch Walker and, and J Light Ranger, just because this is a deck that doesn't have that much removal, like direct removal. Um, you have Raska that can remove something, a Lord in three, and, and I was telling you how uh, I think one of the games I just won on the back of Massacre Girl because there's not that much removal, and when you have one, they can't kill it with Raska. They, I'm not sure they bring in, well, they might bring in cast downs. Was your opponent the Night King? You just gave him a dagger? <laughs> and they basically have to rely on Teferi bouncing it or... or, or uh, yeah, both Teferi's and and uh, Vrask are kind of your removal spells right in the deck. Plus, I guess you have Massacre Girl that can sweep some things out. But yeah, no, they're, they're a bit removal light, right? Instead of removal, they have these Planeswalkers, which are pseudo-removal, but also, you know, card advantage engines. So... If you have a, a relevant threat like let's say feather, right, is a the red white heroic deck could be kind of good there if you can play a feather and play a protection spell on it. It's going to be tough for them to beat that a lot of the time. But you know they kind of try and ignore your creatures by wild growth walker gaining life and then grinding you out with planeswalkers. If so, they're they kind of can struggle if you're operating a different axis than trying to grind. So that, that's one way to attack it. For example, uh, our mutual friend Davies Clark won the Star City Games uh, Classic with what he described as Binder Gruel, which actually looks kind of sweet. I mean, a bunch of Planeswalkers and Gruel is, you know, wrapping them out with Llanowar Elves into Domri, into Sarkin or Chandra can be pretty powerful. And you also get, you know, some other role players of, of red and green decks of, of, of the days past. So you think it might, you think it has potential? I think I might. I mean, I haven't played a single game with it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I but we're supposed I, to extrapolate versus yeah, people yeah. will play a thousand. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think even Davies played a thousand, but I, I think it, there could be something there. I mean, again, planeswalkers, I think, are where the standards at. If you look, there's something like 76 planeswalkers legal in standard. You know how many planeswalkers have ever been printed in the history of Magic? It's like 150. There's basically half of the planeswalkers that exist of all time are currently legal in standard. So obviously, they're powerful, there's a lot of them, and you need to be prepared. That's my standard tip of the day. I'm kind of kind of done with the real strategic talk now. So, how was dinner? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Okay, we gotta, we gotta finish up. So, to continue your point on attacking from a different angle, I think I, I would've, I think the match, I could've won this match, but uh, in terms of attacking the Dreadheart deck from another angle, I was playing against a green-white tokens lag. Even though you had, uh, what's that uh, Raspel? Root the, the black 
double black, two colorless. Kills everything with convert cost three or less. Uh, is it rain or river? Rain of uh, <laughs> rain <of> filth? <laughs> no, no. no. It's like a, okay. I know what it is. Anyways, two colorless black black destroy all creatures. Convert mana cost three or less. Right, right. and I think like, ritual of soot. Right, you think it's good? You, you think it might be good? But they they actually have a lot of higher casting cost threats that they can play, and they they can bring in Lyras. And if you don't have a cast down for them. Cast down for Lyra? Yeah, oh, sorry, that's legendary. But oh, if you yeah. don't have a re removal spell for Lyra... Just like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Lyra becomes really good against against that deck. Yeah, no, I can I can see, I mean, Lyra, though, as a card, generally isn't great against either Teferi, right? Right. Uh, you know, there's, they say in Magic, there's Maul Drifters and their Bane Slayers, and this is literally a Bane Slayer. Uh, and Bane Slayers are the cards that, you know, if they're not answered, are going to usually take over a game. They're hugely powerful things. And whereas Maul Drifters give you value immediately, like Massacre Girl is kind of a Maul Drifter in some regards, that it, you know, kills a bunch of stuff. But it, it does do a good job of killing your opponent too. 4-4 four, four Menace is, is a real threat. But, you know, I'll... I think Lyra puts you in the position where, like, you said Teferi's good, but because you have tokens, you're in a Teferi, let's say for three, I'm going to kill your Teferi next turn. And have, I still have the Lyra to cast. And same thing with the big Teferi. You're never in a good spot if the token deck is working properly or, or has some sort of board presence. You're never in a good spot to Teferi 5 and bounce. Right, yeah, like, the token deck's good against you. I think Lyra, they can answer, but it's more the fact that you go very wide and have Lyra. And then potentially also, like, um, Shalai, too, which can protect Lyra and, you know, is an angel, so it gets the, the Lyra bonus. Which is a pretty big game. And the other deck that I was on, you and, and then you responded that you thought it has potential is the Mass Manipulation deck. I was playing against Incubation Druid, and again, this deck doesn't play that much removal, and, and I wish I had um, Raska to just kill it, but I was, I was in a matchup where, where he played multiple Incubation Druids, Mass Manipulation, my entire board, and I was just like, And Nissa too, right? Nissa double your mana. It's, it, go, it, it, goes, it goes pretty nuts. You can get a lot of mana really quickly. With Llanor Elves into Accelerance, into Nyssa, into Untap, your board is mine. And that's pretty powerful against decks that don't, are kind of low on interaction, which in many ways these Planeswalker decks are moving in that direction. I think the Esper Planeswalker deck is the one that has the most interaction, but even the Jeskai deck has, you know, added some Lightning Strike, Shock, Deafening Clarion stuff, which can kill a bunch of Matadorks, but... Without that, like you, if your if your mana dorks are unmolested and you start casting these huge spells early, it's pretty powerful. That's it turns out that spending like ten mana on a spell, you get a lot out of it. <laughs> but I'm sitting there, Alex. I'm like sitting there as I watch Nissa, and I'm like, wow, is this underplayed or something? It's making all these lands, and again, I, I keep hammering on this point. I hope I'm not annoying the listeners, but this deck doesn't really deal is not able to deal with like infinite like even two lands that can attack so wait wait uh, let, can just can you rephrase that sorry I, are you saying that this deck doesn't have much removal <laughs> no but I, I i do in seriousness like, i do think nissa is a like, card whose stock is, is is rising i think this is pretty cool and historically in planeswalker focused formats like before when there was a super friends deck of jace like ajani elspeth and stuff Elspeth was one of the superstars because it could it was a planeswalker that could pressure other planeswalkers. Even previous Nissas have been good at doing that too. Even like Mono Black Devotions era, you know, Nissa that made four, your lands into four fours permanently was someone splashing this Mono Black deck just for that purpose in many ways. 
and being able to, you know, they play a Planeswalker, get their value out of it, and then you can play your Planeswalker and kill their Planeswalker, you still have the creature and you still have your Planeswalker, that's a huge swing. Because normally when you kill a Planeswalker, Planeswalkers are like creatures with haste, or, you know, like spells. You get a val value of them right away. They're mall drifters, effectively. So killing them after the fact usually leaves you down a card, unless the way you're killing them is through combat, in which case... You know, you break even, or you're a little bit up, because often they give you half a card in value from whatever their ability is. Sometimes it's a full card, but uh, then you're just even. But with Nyssa, your activation gives you effectively half a card, let's say a 3-3, maybe even a whole card. And you still have the Nyssa around, and then you kill their Planeswalker. So now you're up cards, and then it's your opponent's turn to have to try to answer what you did. Even they kill your Nyssa with, let's say, the Elder Spell, while well, you're still left with a 3-3. And, like... I, th I think in Planeswalker Wars, it's good to have Planeswalkers who can kill other Planeswalkers. Maybe maybe Bolas will finally have his time to shine. I think that's why people are playing some amount of Bolas. They're experimenting with cutting Teferi for Bolas. And I can see Bolas being basically outside of the mana, maybe just better. Just because you, when you draw, you're not really making use of the two mana that you untap with with Teferi. Yeah, I think to, that's why Teferi Five stock is is down because the huge benefit, like there have been a lot of Planeswalkers that plus to draw a card, minus three or whatever, answer something, and then minus whatever ultimate, win the game. But uh, the reason Teferi has been, <laughs> I like I like your dance moves. <laughs> yeah, break it down, break it down. Oh, whoa, that was a sick card with KYT. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, the, yeah, the reason Teferi's been so dominant is because of the two mana that you get. But these control decks, you know, they had Seal Away, they had Negate, they had Essence Scatter, whatever. They could use their mana, even sell the wreckage sometimes, to, to really punish you while keeping the Teferi in play, using the mana to protect it. So you didn't have to minus to protect it, you could plus protect it with spells. And with three mana Teferi is actually kind of the predator of five mana Teferi. So the fact that it, three mana Teferi shuts off instance... The song is great. As <laughs> three mana Teferi shut, setting off instance does oh, I does see stop stop the, the mana from, also yeah exactly so and three mana Teferi can come down under counter spell shields and gets a, a card out of it right away and you don't really want to like Frasca's contempt that after they've already gotten their card out of it right that's why I'm talking about like fe the feel bads of. You're down a card, they're down a card, but then they drew the card from Teferi. There's up one card, they spent less mana than you did. You have two life, who cares? So, but stopping the instance from being that powerful, I think, is why we see this move towards these Planeswalker control decks that are very mid-range focused, rather than, like, the Esper control decks prior to War of the Spark, where there are a lot of instants, you know, multiple absorbs, negates, tons of, you know, instant speed removal spells. And now a lot more sorcery speed which is one thing I don't love about the format I don't I, I prefer instant speed interaction because I find the timing of, of spells is one of the more interesting things in magic compared to let's say other card games like H-E-A-R-T rock another word you know but where you kind of just get to play on your own turn and I do think that Having the ability to do things last minute or to respond to what your opponent does and kind of gives a cat and mouse type game where I like to be the cat. But well, that's a good point. That's why I think Teferi on five is, is stock is dropping. Because I was thinking, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, okay, 
the Dread Horde deck is actually super predictable if you know most of the content. And it would throw the opponent for a loop if you just had any sort of um, random interaction spell. Because it's just like, if I'm playing against Dread Horde deck, I know like most of their stuff is sorcery, I already know what they could do. But if they were like, they could surprise me. But if I have a Teferi to play, then they can't. They, can't, yeah, they even, can't do anything. They can't even do that. They can't even surprise. Uh, today, I had a game of limited where I had Teferi. I, I plus Teferi. Then my opponent's draw step. I cast Toll the Invasion to take a card from their hand. They draw and band together an instant, but they can't cast it because of the Teferi. But I can cast my sorcery in their draw step. I get rid of their instant. It felt disgusting. Teferi is this kind of kind of absurd, and people aren't really using the plus ability on it in standard. It's much more draw a card, bounce a thing, and then like seal of your opponents can't cast instants. And so when you have a Teferi in play, you don't have to worry about what your opponent's gonna do. You don't have to worry about the reaction. You just know they're not doing anything. And I think that takes some of the interesting parts away. I think it's always interesting to like, you know, do you jam this thing threat or do you play a worse, worse threat because you don't want them to kill that or counter that or whatever. And hey, so actually to continue on your idea last week, Paradise Druid or not, would you be okay with experimenting if if somehow like Model Red was still the number one then SCG? It was the top deck uh, in terms of percentage on day two, but maybe at the local level it's starting to diminish a bit if people want to experiment with these Walker decks, with these Gruel decks. Uh, so maybe Chain Whirler, hopefully less copies, maybe bump up the Paradise Druids, and then play more Nickables. Yeah, you could do that. You could you could even go like if you think Mono Red's not going to be that played, you could even. I know it's kind of, it sounds kind of crazy, but you can oh. cut Wild Growth Walker. Whoa, whoa, no, for, that's for, crazy. For, for that's incubation crazy. Really. That's crazy. And this podcast, yeah. And this is boom. No, no, there's not enough forests. Not right? enough forest. Well, does it matter? I don't know. It depends. You know, you, does it matter? Do you need I all think, that mana? You don't necessarily need that mana with this deck. Just making three threes is good, right? Ooh. You don't have to. Don't have to give your forest a, a little bump, but. Nissa killing their stuff could be nice. Could be it's it kind of does a little bit of what five mana Teferi could do in the matchups. Make the three threes, unless they're massacring you. you. You know you could play instead of massacre girls, you could play the Nissas. Because I would pro I wouldn't play Nickel Bolston if I had Druid right because they only produce green. No, they produce any color. Any color of lands you control. Usually black is going to be your limiting resource when for casting Nickel Bolas right. You need triple black, single blue, single red. Of course, the deck doesn't play red right now, so you kind of need to move move things around. Mana base maybe gets more ambitious, but I don't know if I don't know if I'd be all about I don't know if I'd be about Bolus even in in that deck. I think it's a bit. This is a minor it's, upgrade it's over Teferi, me. Yeah, too minor. But I, I think it's I think it's too minor to add yet another color. Now, if you're cutting three mana Teferi because you think people are moving away from counter spells, if they're not playing Nexus anymore, then maybe you can go with the red route, you know, but. No. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You, I wouldn't do it. You've convinced me that three mana Teferi is too much of a staple in the format, and uh... it does something similar to what Jataxian probes did in my mind. In that, like, you now just kind of know a huge amount of information about your opponent's hand. You don't actually know the exact contents of it, right. but you know that they just don't have an instant that they're going to cast. Okay. And that just leads to games being unfun, in my opinion. You can't ca kill walkers. Yeah, can't bounce walkers. No, no, I mean, you can't cut wild growth walkers. How are you going to oh, gain life for, for command? You have 20 life to start with. How are they going to do damage to you? 
Boom. I got got to respect the mono red. It's still going to be. Yeah, of course. I, I would. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying. That. I'm just saying if you expect no mono red in your in in your format, and you expect everybody to be playing planeswalkers, well, I, I think you probably would have a higher win percentage with four elder spells in your in your deck instead of four wild growth walkers or something. You know, but. I Ma think it's better to take a more balanced approach. And how much blue is mass manipulation? Three, Four. Three? Okay, forget it. <laughs> dream, dream on, dream on. Often, often that card's like insane, to, though. It is insane, but <laughs> I like the Inception quote: you "Mustn't be afraid to dream, dream a little bigger, darling." But here, this, you're dreaming a little too big, my friend. <laughs> there, there's a different deck, though. The blue-green deck. I think it's it could be legit. What? In it could be legit. Ely Cassis one. I don't know if it's Ely Cassis, but it's match manipulation. You know? Okay, that one, that one. No, he played something else. He played some Karn thing that brought in, like, that Meteor Golem in the sideboard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> kids, don't try this at home. Ely Cassis is a trained professional. <laughs> With the match manipulation thing, I think it, it, it probably does bad against, like... Are you trying to convince our readers as a group to play this deck? No. You know, you could say that you're mass no. manipulating them. <laughs> I think it could be the next, definitely, I think you agree with me, it could be the next level if, like, the, the whole metagame was just, like, walker invested, but I see a lot of weaknesses with, with that. Like, that archetype could probably never beat Nexus, right? Because they're just, you can only steal creatures and planeswalkers and, and Nexus will just ignore you. Well, Nexus sometimes, I mean, especially it seems like people are moving towards Bant Nexus. Like, Brad Nelson played that last week to pretty cool match against Shota Yasoka. Uh, and what's different about it? It's well, basically, it's got Teferi and Tamiya, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. has Revitalized as well as another another white card. Um, and Deputy of Detention. So, kind of having more Planeswalkers there means that, you know, your, your mass manipulations have some targets, potentially. Uh, but I think also just after sideboard, you you usually gonna have a bunch of frilled mystics and you can have some negates and stuff. And oh my god, <laughs> you can maybe you make it maybe get there. You can maybe transform a little bit into some of these bad flash decks. You could have a little Vivian or something. Who knows? Someone someone needs to spice this up. This oh, might there's, some, be good. There, there's there's some spice. This format has a lot of stuff you can do, and you know there's the MPL league, but that's always kind of a, a little bit behind the times in some ways because more and more stuff happens. And there hasn't really been a huge tournament besides, let's say, the SCGs to kind of reward innovation. And when there's no real reward, people don't put in the work to the same extent. And I don't know what the, what's going to happen. You know, we haven't gotten to the point where the format has rotated all the way around yet, where we've come back to mono red, let's say, right, from the early days. We're still exploring the, the circle of life of the format. I'd say we're... I, I would guess we're about a third of the way there, so I think there's still a lot... A lot more to see. Uh, you know, what's what's the next step? I think you know there's definitely ways to exploit the fact that people are playing all these planeswalkers, and maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe maybe our listeners will figure it out, and maybe somebody else else altogether who doesn't listen will figure it out. I'm betting on the third option because, <laughs> as far as I know, it's just my parents and a couple of your friends who watch this listen to this podcast. Uh. All right, let's wrap it up. I think that's enough content that... Uh, There's very little content, to be fair. People will, will be satisfied yeah, until your return. We, we, we went to a nice Chinese restaurant, in case uh, oh, yeah. you guys are interested. We had some uh, cumin beef, I think was the, the, the superstar of the From dish. Yeah. Ant Thai? That, that was the restaurant name? Like, Ant Thai? Well, you're, 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 you're just butchering her name. Poor woman. Anyways, 
Yeah, we had some twice-cooked pork, which was too spicy for KYT, but of course, the, our waitress gave me a stern look, says, this is very spicy, are you sure you can handle it? Didn't, didn't ask KYT, just stared me straight in the eyes. Little does you know, I have, I have a stomach full of steel, you know. Twice-cooked pork, I love yeah. the name, I love the name. <laughs> and we had some uh, Mapo tofu. Shout out to Bosu, it's his favorite dish. It's one of my all-time favorites also. When my mom nice. makes it, or at Shea Chili. Yeah, Shea Chili. Shout out to Shea Chili. <laughs> and I think, uh, what else? Who's the best player in Kingston? The best player in Kingston? I think it's that, um, is it Elliot Fortier, Fournier, <laughs> uh, Fourlier, something like that. I think, I think, does he still live in Kingston? I thought the best, no, no, he doesn't. <laughs> so well, I mean, we went, mentioned John Watson already. He's he's a bronze level pro. He did it the hard way. I heard it was like a football player. That's pretty good. I'm sure it's, is it American football or like British football? <laughs> not, I think American. American? I, I heard he, he just likes. I didn't know that though. he was a player. Yeah, I thought he was just an enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, actually, really. but uh, yeah, I heard. I heard Who, who's the best? Guy. Who's the best player in Ottawa? There's an Ottawa MCQ this weekend. Yeah. I know this. I, you're thinking about going, right? I think. I'm Are you going to be mass manipulating people? Uh, maybe. Commanding the dread maybe. horde. Maybe. There's going to be planeswalkers in your deck, though, right? You're going to you're going to summon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to play Tamio, right? I think. I think for sure there's going to be some sort of uh, some amount of planeswalker. Uh, if I'm playing this side, I'd be happy if I figured out uh, the shell. But uh, I think one of the more solid players I've ever played against, Canadian players, is Andrew Novarai. I think... Uh, Good guy, Andrew Novarai. Well, he was in my first ever Grand Prix Top 8. I battled him in the Top 4 of that. Like, and I beat the crap out of him. It was, it was a delight. <laughs> Shout out to Andrew Novarai. Like you said, when you could tell... How good people are! Like I, like people don't might not know this. Like you were way better than me at chess, but I was still ranked top ten for my for my grade. True story. Were check, you? You're pretty bad. <laughs> check the, your chess and math books if you uh, subscribe. Uh, what was it? Yeah, yeah. Check your math. It, it, check your math was uh, but scholars. Oh, mate. scholars mate. I was in that. Wow, I was so top ten. I was in top oh, ten. Yeah. I was top ten. Man, that was th that. Those things were epic. I remember. Remember some of the storylines and stuff in there. <laughs> also, like when they grouped us by age level, I, I was either top, definitely at least top fifty Canada for that that age group. And, um, and you were really old too, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I know at least I have some strategy pedigree. That's why I'm really confident in my play. Once um, and in Magic, like I I can tell when I was playing you that that's why like Jay Elroy always like. And Kyle Duncan always praises me for, for like, I was pumping you before everyone else was. People thought I was just like pure hype or something. They always like tell me like you were the first one to see it. And playing against you, I always felt like you were a level above me. And when I play Andrew, it's someone that I just don't think is going to uh, just punt the game away against me or screw up uh, in all the games I've played against them. So I feel really strong yeah. about his play. That's one of the indicators, right? It's always like the tournament, the tournament litmus test. You pair, you play against this person in X level of tournament. You, de you define what it is. And then are you happy, sad, or like neutral, you know? And like, or like devastated. You know, let's say, you know, if you play against, you know, Paulo Vitor Damanarosa at a PTQ, you're like, what the hell, man? You know, you're, you're obviously devastated. You're like, how are you playing in this thing? So, but like, you play him at the Pro Tour, you feel pretty bad, right? You play, you, 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 but you play him at Worlds, and it's like, all right, you know, he's like, still 
better than average opponent, but it's not outrageous. But like, so you know, at, you, if you if you compare to different levels of tournaments, and you keep fe- like kind of fearing this person, not necessarily fear, but like you'd rather have a different pairing. That's a good indicator to me, you know, whether or not I kind of think someone's someone's worthy of respect as a player. Though everybody's worthy of respect as a person. Right. Like I respect you a lot as a person. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I. Shout out, like, I want to shout out John Rowe because he's a GP winner, but I just never played enough games against him to, to really have a good gauge. Um, and there's some some big names in, in the Ottawa area that you know I just never had a chance to, to play with in the past. And uh, you know, P. Sam's used to be in Ottawa. I call him coach for fun, but I actually, honestly, outside of watching him play some solid games, I've never actually played against him enough to Canadian to icon. Feel, Canadian icon to feel as good as I do about uh, Andrew. He's one of the few players I've I've just seen play or played against them multiple times. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, I think I would have said Dan Lent. It was my number one pick for players from Ottawa. But, of course, uh, I would just say that he's kind of disqualified from uh, the discussion now. Uh, but there have been a lot of strong, strong players coming out of Ottawa, you know. And uh, as kind of the closest major city to Montreal, I've gotten gotten the experience to mingle with with them at least back in the day but don't know who who's good now you know there's the next generation is rising up and at some point they'll they'll come and they'll they'll battle me you know like sean dollywall from who, you know, <laughs> the, dollywall. The, the chief superintendent <laughs> <laughs> but or you know back, there's also the old school players like kyle duncan you mentioned and you know everybody kind of you know it's a there's there's waxing and wanes, you know, how much people are trying, whether, you know, there's new players coming up and trying hard, and, you know, the cream usually does rise to the top, but there's always, you know, there's always, I I was talking with you about this earlier, there's a survivorship bias, right? Like, would we be talking on this podcast? I mean, you would, obviously, but would I, if if I hadn't gotten incredibly lucky in Pro Tour Barcelona, Pro Tour Avacyn Restored, you know, like, I needed to top 75 that tournament or I'd be off the train and I probably was going to quit Magic and I wouldn't be recording this podcast right now. So, you know, always always remember that even the incredibly skilled players, okay, I guess I'm tooting my own horn there a little bit, but, and myself, and myself, have to, had, had to get kind of lucky at, at spots, you know, to get where they are. Like, you need, you need skill and luck to intersect and the way to do that is to focus on the process, focus on getting as good as you can and not the results, but also make sure that you need to take a bunch of shots. Each tournament, you know, you can win, lose. Like, Josh Layton told me, you know, he he didn't make day two of the Pro Tour that he played Cobblade at. He had Cobblade. They were the only ones with Cobblade. <laughs> he didn't make day two of that Pro Tour. You know, like, just think about that. And when you remember that type of thing, you know, anything can happen. It, magic because it's a game with variants but over the long run we'd like to think luck balances out so if you keep trying enough you'll probably eventually get there unless you're incredibly incredibly lucky unlucky i think i think you reminded me like ej seltzer local who had cobblade and he lost so i believe it was kyle rick who played the event deck version of cobblade (laughs) and it was like (laughs) It wasn't even Cobbway. He won. Like, EJ Seltzer lost wow. the real version. Kyle Rick's been been on the circuit. I, I got to see him in London. He's, 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 he's one of, one of the, the top Canadian judges from Ottawa originally. <laughs> and I, I don't know if he still lives there or if he's on the on the road now, but... 
I'll finish with this thought though. I, I, even though you, like you joke that that I would be doing this show, but I I, I mentioned in, in a lot of interviews and even on the Men of uh, Magic podcast that we both got interviewed for, where I, I had a lot of luck because I was lucky that I was the first one to do it, right timing, and I was also really lucky to meet you, Vincent Tebow, and Doug Potter at the time. One out of three ain't bad, but <laughs> Ansel Thibault is a gasser. You know? no, shout, shout out to Doug. He's, he's the person who probably retweets the most of my tweets. I still remember Vincent Thibault. I asked him to write me an article the, after we, we met, and he top eight it with... Nationals finalist? Vincent Thibault. I believe it was Polymorph or, or Valakut, and then he's like... Where, where's this getting posted? Like, is anybody going to read it? Like, wh- where's this going? I'm like, it's just this new site I started. And he was willing to give it a leap of faith and then help me become known. So, like, without him being so nice to just write an entire article, not getting paid, community contribution, Vincent Thibault, oh, yeah. and believe that I could help in some way, I was like not even known, but like I, I just was confident that I, we could do something and have people read it. it was huge amount. Yeah, no, I mean, overconfidence is really important in magic. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, mega episode. Cool. You'll hear us next time. All right, clap your hands if you're happy. <laughs> all right. That podcast was long. My wife's gonna kill me. You don't even get paid for this, man.